Hey there, this is Natalie Argarius, and you're listening to the Urbanist Podcast, where we explore news, information, and ideas related to how to improve cities and quality of life. Today, I'm joined with reporter Ray Dubicki. Hi, Ray. Hi, I'm Ray Dubicki. On this week's show, we're talking about the uplifting topic of threatened nuclear war and what 40 years of Cold War did to the shape of our cities. So we're going to kick this off by talking a little bit about strategic highway expansion. So, Ray, which president was it that uh, got us into this mentality that we have to keep building our highways to be bigger and connect more places? You mean besides Joe Biden? <laughs> uh, well, it's, oh, there was someone before Joe? No. There was somebody before. We, we do not speak that other person's name. But we'll go back a little further than that. Uh, in 1956, President Eisenhower pushed states to... Um, build more roads. Uh, This was done under the Interstate Highway and Defense Act. Um, The legend is that he saw how trucks were able to distribute goods across Europe during the Second World War. And he came on the Autobahn and he came back to the United States and said, we got to build some of these highways. So wait a second. So that's interesting. I didn't know that the Autobahn actually preceded the American highway system. The Autobahn uh, preceded the American highway system because it was built by the Nazis. Just like, and they had their Volkswagens, and they were able to cart things around in these large, spacious roads. Okay. And, you know, there was another policy that Eisenhower undertook that accelerated the need for strategic highway expansion and also um, got people thinking about urban dispersal, which basically meant moving people out of cities and into suburbs. And that was this very scary idea of mutually assured destruction. Mutually assured destruction is the concept in international politics that if you have enough bombs, the other team's not going to strike first because they know you're going to hit them back in a horrifying and decapitating way. But, you know, at the same time, because the United States did see the Soviet Union undertake nuclear testing, there was a fear that this could happen. And so Basically, the decision was made that the only way to prevent massive casualties from a nuclear attack would be to have a dispersed population. In fact, in 1949, the National Security Resources Board stated, there is no known military defense against the atomic bomb itself except space. They really just needed to wait another 40 years until the fourth Indiana Jones film when he found a refrigerator to hide in. True. You know, if only they had had the foresight at that time. Um, But, you know, this led to the adoption of policies like awarding defense contracts that um, linked suburbanization directly to national security. It's an amazing thing to consider that suburbs are part of national defense, because when we think of suburbs, it's all about the picturesque ability to have your own land and let the kids run free in your yard when part of the reason to have a yard is so you can bury a bomb shelter in it. That's true. And, you know, potentially hide in your house until enough time has elapsed and the fallout has begun to disintegrate. It's absolutely terrifying these days to consider how much of that has seeped into just the way we structure our lives. True. And, you know, one of the biggest transitions that occurred in this time was this real push for individualism, which we had always associated with Americanism, but it it gained a new expression because of the ability for people to move into these single family homes, to move out of urban centers where they had largely been living in, you know, tighter quarters, smaller dwellings. 
And part of this came from the fact that we did have a housing shortage at the end of the Second World War. And so there was a real need to create new housing. But we also had this desire to differentiate ourselves from the communists, basically. This was the McCarthyist era, you know, 19 late 1940s through the 1950s, McCarthyism held tremendous cultural sway and all kinds of civic groups were targeted. I mean, groups that we would never imagine being disruptive, like women's associations. I guess labor unions can be disruptive. We've seen that with the recent concrete worker strike in Washington. Um, But, you know, groups that were associated with people of specific races or ethnicities, they were all seen because of their organizing ability as, you know, being potential threats. And so there was this desire to move Americans toward a more independent, separated way of life in which people lived in separate dwellings. The the question occurs to me, when we look back, it doesn't occur to you right off the bat that we had to be sold the idea of suburbs and individualism and that this was a really advertising campaign that we had to mix into American culture because what is a tenement house in New York but a symbol for a whole bunch of immigrants coming into the city but within a generation of those tenement houses we have the ideal American space being a single family house with a yard and a picket fence and when you think about it that single family house is not necessarily more safe. It may actually have been more safe for the government to invest in public shelters, both bomb shelters and fallout shelters. However, there were a few reasons why this didn't happen. So one was that it was seen as potentially um, promoting an idea of communistic living. And then the second was that it was seen as too directed by the state and they wanted to move toward privatization and against state centrism. And that was part of this move to really curtail the welfare state. So instead of actually providing people with safe places to shelter in the event of a nuclear attack, they instead said, hey, you can buy this house. It's not super expensive, but actually it's not cheap either. So many of you won't be able to buy these houses. And if you'd like to pay for it yourself, we advise you to create a uh, bomb shelter in your backyard or basement. Thinking about it that way, when they tell the people, when they tell a certain class of people that it's okay to save yourselves out in the suburbs, one wonders how closely they observed the class of people with a particular race of people that were allowed to get out and be protected from these weapons. Oh, yeah, that was absolutely on the top of people's minds. And when they were actually doing some of the um, scenarios in which they were showing cities being bombed out, they were very careful to include... um, storefronts that were obviously for Black-owned businesses or immigrant-owned businesses, they were clear to show that cities were the place of the other. People who were not, you know, seen as as fully American as the white, middle, or upper-middle-class American. And this connected to this really strong sense of a lifeboat mentality that guided a lot of thinking. At the top, you know, there was this idea, we have to save the decision makers, the scientists, the people that we see are the, the most critical contributors to our society. And so that's why you did have some of these public shelters constructed in federal buildings, not by no means all federal buildings, but some had some. And then beneath that, it was like, okay, we have to try to preserve the people who we see as the most American. And that That was people who were seen as white, non-immigrant, and also affluent enough to have the funding to leave the city. 
one of the overlaps between building highways and uh, civil defense was actually experimented on in Seattle. In 1962, uh, under I-5 in Whedon Place, uh, there was a fallout shelter built. Whedon Place is where Ravenna goes under I-5. Oh, okay. I know exactly where that is. I um, I lived in an apartment that McCarthy definitely wouldn't have approved of. Um, very close by there. It was an apartment that had like five units and what had once been a single family house. And shortly after I moved in, I realized it had no real address. <laughs> and so I, I never had to pay utility bills when I lived there, though, which was a, a fantastic bonus for the three years I was there. How can Joe McCarthy tag you as a socialist if oh, you don't have an address. That's a great point. It's a great point. Great way to keep it under the radar. So apparently the Whedon Place fallout shelter under the concrete abutment that's holding up I-5 right off of Ravenna was first poured uh, in May of 1962. So it is right coming up on its 60th anniversary of being started. And next year, maybe we'll celebrate a 60th anniversary of having an underground bunker and a one-of-a-kind thing. Will they offer tours? I have only ever seen pictures of people that snuck in. I didn't see if it was a tour. Like, um, my curiosity is piqued to go check this place out and see if I could sneak in. I don't think I'm daring enough for that, though. So around the same time as well, this whole idea of urban renewal, which comes up a lot, was also coming into vogue. And it was also influenced by the Cold War, the threat of nuclear weapons. And it, this influence manifested in different forms. Um, partly it was seen as, you know, we're dispersing areas that could be vulnerable for attack. Um, but certain planners also tried to make the argument, let's clear this out ourselves before the bombs get to them, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And... Um, they looked at urban renewal as a process of creative destruction in which a tabula rasa could be created and the city could be reimagined in a new modernist um, sense that could meet the challenges of the era. Sounds like a root canal theory of urban planning where, oh, we're already around there to destroy the city with a highway. Let's root out some other stuff that we don't find appealing and put in a filling that we know is what we think is the perfect thing to keep the tooth. I really like that metaphor of a root canal. It's very visceral and very appropriate in this, um, in this circumstance. And, you know, AIA, um, the American Institute of Architects, was all on board with this. I don't. I don't mean to to really criticize AIA. I mean there were there were you know some concerns that related to some of the what we would think of now as perhaps tenement housing at that time. Oh, I'm a planner. Take on AIA as much as you can. Okay. Rip them up. Rip them up. Okay. Um, but you know they said things like slums constitute one of the greatest potential dangers under any kind of bombing. And they really saw it as a moral um, imperative to redesign dwellings, redesign cities. And in fact, AIA was heavily engaged in civil defense planning. The, um, the U.S. government wanted to figure out which kinds of housing would best survive nuclear attack. They were looking at, you know... Is a one-story uh, one-story ranch house, you know, more likely to survive a nuclear attack than a two-story colonial? Never came to any real determinations on that, but these were the kinds of questions that they were exploring at the time. 
If we want to talk a little bit more about bomb shelters, fallout shelters, I mean, they you know make what? for... I can... Oh, no. I was going to say, well, I, I, we can go into the continuity of government part. Would, we can. Or would you... What? Well, okay. So I'm wondering, like, if we're being too subdued, and if we were to try <laughs> to talk about this again, we could do it in a more animated way. What do you think? You know what? I think... It is a it is a horrible topic to consider the human hand extinction of the human race, and to be peppy and amusing about it is to partially do it a disservice. But it also is a topic that we need to cover over this time because it's there's threat there is and it's a threat that we haven't had in thirty years. Well, I think more than anything, we're dealing with uncertainty and also the pain of seeing people in the Ukraine suffering, people fighting for their country, Russia engaging in actions that were inconceivable even just a week or two ago. And so, yeah, it is definitely difficult to talk about. And as you know, I was a child during the very end of the Cold War. Ray experienced a bit more of it than me. We've lived the majority of our lives without having to think about the influences that pushed our country to develop in this way. I remember the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was in middle school when that happened, and we lived in suburban Maryland. There are very few adults in when I was growing up who did not have a story about uh, seeing some sort of flash, hearing a rumble, and thinking, oh, they nuked D.C., um, my dad tells the story of being at College Park, Maryland, seeing the sky light up and thinking, oh, kiss my butt goodbye. And that story ended up being that a bull ran into a transformer, but it was that was one of his thought processes that was a legitimate thing to consider at the time. So my parents um, both grew up in neighborhoods of Chicago that were close by factories. And so when they were children, they would practice duck and cover exercises in school. And I, I remember I was in sixth grade when I first learned the fact that nuclear war was a real threat that continued to exist on our planet. Um, prior to that, I think I had seen it as something that had happened in World War II that was very sad, um, but I didn't understand that it could, you know, maybe impact the world that I lived in. Um, but my, my social studies teacher went into great depth about it, and I remember my father in particular was so angry. And at the time, I thought, I was angry at him. I thought, why did you hide this from me? I deserved to know. I can't believe I didn't know that there was this, you know, this threat that was out there, this mortal threat. But I realize now, I think it came from his trauma of growing up with that threat, of his, the fact that it had influenced his childhood and his mentalities. And more than anything, he had wanted to shield me from that. I recall specifically after the Cold War ended, um, there was a lot of articles about continuity of government, the steps that we took to protect the top echelons of the U.S. government. And there were things like the Constitution was going to drop into an underground safe. And there was a cart that they pushed around the gallery of art and skipped this picture and picked up this picture and things like that. Um, and there are grand, uh, there are enormous shelters for Congress and the president in the hills of West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania. 
And I ate up all of this in late middle school and that time. And now I have two kids that are that same age and they are watching this Ukraine coverage. And I have to tap into that thinking of what I was, what I remember from there to say, look, (laughs) this is terrifying. You have a right to be scared. Please talk about it. Because I didn't. We talk about that stuff. We talked about it from the perspective of, whoa, we're going to survive a nuclear war by bomb shelters and things like that. But it was just straight up trauma. And I guess for us, I mean, we also lived through the 9-11 era and the fear that accompanied that. And I remember I was in New York City very shortly after the uh, tube bombings in London. And I was riding the subway and a man got into the subway and he had two backpacks on. He had one in the front and one in the back and he was sweating and shaking. And I literally, I just sat there and I thought, this is it. This is this is it. And nothing happened. Um, probably more than anything, he, you know, he was dealing with some hardship in his life. But in that moment, um, because everything was so fresh from the bombings in London, it, it felt like a very real threat. And it was one of the only times in my life that I um, yeah, felt that kind of terror. As we continue to process the terrorism era and the climate change era that we're now in, It is useful to look back at that 40 years of Cold War and really understand we built our cities in reaction to this threat. And it it was an existential threat for not just the human race, but also for being an American. We did also decide to build our cities in that way, and we could have chosen a different model. And that's something I feel very aware of right now in this pandemic. So, you know, there was this move in the pandemic um, for people to want to move out of cities or at least supposedly um, move out of cities, get into larger single family homes in more suburban and rural areas. But I actually found what really got me through the pandemic was my neighbors and the fact that we had relationships, we could support each other. And I think I would have felt much more vulnerable if I if I were alone, quite honestly. And so I think, you know, we could have actually grown in a different direction. I'm not saying that we had to, you know, just build a bunch of communal living spaces. But part of this, part of this was safety, but part of this was also a desire to grow the economy, which in the United States has always been heavily, well, I shouldn't say always, at least in the last, what, 100 years, maybe maybe a little bit less even than 100 years, has been linked intrinsically to defense spending, the military. And we we chose one route, but that doesn't mean that there aren't other possibilities out there. I think that's very well said, because we are grappling, and grappling with how we are going to protect ourselves from anything from this new round of threats to changing weather and pandemic to people will put it up there, crime and immigrants. And we see it over and over and over again that do we fall back into a fortress shelter mentality or do we open ourselves up to a different possibility 
that we go forward from. Prane has got us thinking about the Cold War in a way that we haven't in a long time. I, I mean, I watched. I remember when I watched the TV show The Americans. My father was like, "How can you watch this? How can you possibly, you know, enjoy seeing something from the perspective of Soviet spies? Do you know how?" How dangerous they were! How you know? How evil essentially they were! And I was at the time watching it like, well, it's interesting to imagine the other side. And and I wouldn't want to cast all Russians or even all people who are members of like the Russian government, military in in this in the same group. I think what what's happening right now. I mean, we know that Putin's leadership is. Has been instrumental in determining the course of action that's been taken, and maybe one of our greatest hopes is that people in Russia will step up and not want to follow suit. Um, as unlikely as that might seem at this time, but I think that it, this incredibly important event that's taking place right now has. Made us consider things from our history that are still at work today, that are still influencing our lives in new ways, and that was why I wanted to talk about this in relation to our cities, because when you look at it from the outside, suburbanization doesn't actually make a lot of sense in many ways, and it's also it's not that desirable either. One of the hard parts about the way that we made stuff for the Cold War back in the day. Putting highways into places, giving everybody cars, is it's amazing to see the way that that now plays into Putin's ability to wage war, because we are so dependent on oil in order to protect ourselves from nuclear war that all of a sudden we're paying him to be able to fight in Ukraine, and we heard it in the State of the Union address. That keeping oil under a certain price point is vital to the president and the administration. It's also keeping the oil moving is vital to Putin's ability to bomb innocent civilians in countries around him. And it's also connected to the climate crisis, which we can't look away from, even if we have other crises that are attracting our attention at this point. The IPC has released another report that's showing even, you know, graver consequences than were imagined in the past if the Earth is allowed to warm up over the 1.5 degree Celsius threshold. We we might not want to go outside based on what the weather and the natural environment will be like. I, I shouldn't be laughing. This is. <laughs> I think it has been proven that some of this you have to laugh at because otherwise it is so debilitatingly sad. I think we all watched Don't Look Up. Did you watch Don't Look Up? I didn't, no! actually. I didn't. My husband watched it without me. And <laughs> I, I don't tend to watch anything without him. So if that happens, then whatever, you know, TV show, movie, whatever, it is checked off the list. It will never, I will never see it. Lost to history. Yeah, well, I think I think we've covered a lot in relation to this topic. What do you think, Ray? I think we are cleared. I think we have cleared the topic for a twenty-minute podcast without going over into the five-hour mark. 
Do you have anything for the bibliography this week, Natalie? Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot to mention this earlier, but a lot of what I um, referenced in this particular podcast came from a book called Fallout Shelter, Designing for Civil Defense in the Cold War. It's by David Montaigne and was published by University of Minnesota Press. It's a bit of a dense read, but if this subject um, you know, is interesting to you, I encourage you to check it out. I appreciate theweek.com with their article, Washington's Secret Doomsday Plans, from back in 2017, where they ran down the reminder of all of the things that Washington, D.C. did to protect itself from nuclear attack. Yeah, and I'll just also do a call out to the Department of Transportation, the federal one, DOT, and how overt they are in their own historical um website, archive, whatever, about how highway expansion was linked to Cold War fears. Well, Natalie, thank you again for a great podcast. Thanks, Ray. And I look forward to joining you again to talk about something maybe a little bit more uplifting sometime soon. This is the Urbanist Podcast. I'm Ray Dubicki. I'm Natalie Argarius. And we will see you next week. Take care.